This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi-Williams, and you're listening to the Sportacast. See, now, you normally get creative. I thought... With this guest, like I thought you were going to come with a fist of fury, a, a, a something. But uh, Chitri Sitchadong, chairman of One Championship, is our guest this week. And for those who don't know One Championship, and I'm wondering, you know what, Chitri, let me just ask you this. What do you think the level of awareness is of One Championship in the U.S.? I think our brand is still at very nascent levels in terms of mainstream uh, obviously, the uh, MMA community is is well aware of one, but even then, it's still not uh, a really big thing in America because America um, MMA media right now is concentrated in the U.S. and a lot of it is concentrated on the incumbent players right now. Um, and we're kind of you know we're, we're huge out here in Asia. There's four and a half billion people here, um, and uh, according to Nielsen, uh, one is now amongst uh, the top ten biggest. Uh, sports properties in the world in terms of viewership and engagement numbers. And um, yeah, so, so so we're really looking forward to introducing ourselves uh, to the U.S. Now, I love the fact, though, that with technology these days, and we've heard David Stern years ago talk about basketball without borders, really borders are erased. Tech allows you to scale your product. And you talked about yourself as a media company. It's a platform company. It's also, by the way, is it a lifestyle brand? Am I wrong or am I right with that? That that it's also a lifestyle brand. But no, of course, definitely, definitely. I mean, uh, it's all of the above. But of course, first and foremost, we are a sports media platform uh, with two major sports properties. One is uh, the martial arts, uh, and then the other one's esports. And so, the martial arts is the equivalent of NBA or NFL, but for martial arts out here in Asia. And then we have one esports, which is again the equivalent of a a DraftKings times a you know Netflix uh, out here for esports in Asia, um, and, and both are you know um, of quite significant size. Here, give, give our listeners a, a primer on tech and the ability to scale to a global audience. Yeah, so you know I always joke around with my friends and my teammates here. One that I'm like the Forrest Gump of sports. Like I had genuinely. Of course, I had a thesis, uh, you know, martial arts, I really believe, uh, you know, is Asia's greatest cultural treasure, 5,000 year history here uh, on the continent of Asia, four and a half billion people. No, there's never been a global sports property ever to come out of the region. So I had a clear thesis of doing this, um, but I got lucky in the sense of, you know, when I look at this smart mobile device, okay, 
You can't see the tennis ball, the golf ball, the basketball, the baseball, the soccer ball. You're not going to spend 90 minutes on the mobile device. But it happens to be perfect for martial arts content. You can see, see the kick. You can see the punch. You see the KO. And it's perfect for gaming. So guess what happened? I mean, literally, we launched a bunch of videos seven years ago. We opened our Facebook uh, uh, page. And I was actually the social media manager because we were so tiny back then. And our videos went viral, like completely nuts. And we didn't know it at the time, but millennial and Gen Z, the first window of media consumption is here. Whereas maybe our parents' generation, it was a TV, you know, linear TV here now. You know, kids all over the world are consuming whenever they want to consume 24-7. And we just got lucky. Like we put out content that happened to be very viral. And, you know, again, like I said, in, in that recent Nielsen uh, industry report, we're now top 10. And actually, I think we're number four uh, in terms of video views around the world. Uh, and, and it's organic video views, right? So it's just literally what people see here. Every sports team league in the U.S. is talking about expansion overseas. They all talk about Asia as the area they want to be in. UFC, I would put in that category as well. They just opened a performance center in Shanghai. It sounds like you guys are almost doing the opposite. You have uh, a very big presence in Asia. You're looking at expansion, and it sounds like the U.S. is the the main market that that you see for doing that. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, we're expanding our footprint in Asia. We're expanding our footprint in Europe. Uh, U.S. happens to also be there. Uh, but I guess I was just asking, you know, I was answering the question about how familiar is the one brand to U.S. mainstream. And, and we aren't I mean, we're brand new. We're, we're, we're the newest kid on the block in terms of the United States. Um, and but you will see uh, U.S. events, uh, you know, one champion events in the U.S. on U.S. soil uh, actually this year. So uh, we were on TNT primetime uh, last month or rather the month before. Um, right after AEW, and uh, that put us at the number two slot in terms of uh, all MMA promotions in the U.S. in terms of viewership numbers. And so we figured, okay, if we did it for a month, we might as well come in to the U.S. Uh, in, in full earnest. And, and uh, you know, uh, it is the most, um, it is the largest market in the world in terms of sports. It is the most sophisticated sports market. Um, so it, it just makes sense for us to, uh, you know, Enter the U.S. Where in the U.S. are you looking? I can't announce yet, uh, but I'm telling you, it's imminent. Probably the next. Uh, actually, I haven't even. I think with you guys, I'm breaking it that that we are having our, our first U.S. event this year. Uh, we thank I, you for that, by the way. Thank you for giving us a little bit of news. That's great stuff. We just we, we're debate we're we're finalizing details on three different locations. So I don't want to let the cat out of the bag until we have 100% solidified that uh, where we're going to do it. And for folks in the U.S. who are have been to UFC events here domestically, how different is a one championship event from a UFC event? Is there things that you guys prioritize you do different from an from an entertainment standpoint or from a fight itself standpoint? How different are those events? No, absolutely, it's 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 180 degrees opposite from anything that is available in the U.S. So it's a completely brand new concept, and I'll give it just just a snapshot of it. Um, there are many types of different martial arts. UFC and all the other incumbent players like a Bellator, they focus on MMA. But there's actually kickboxing, Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, submission, grappling, you know, boxing and, and wrestling and all the other different martial arts, right, across verticals. So UFC and the U.S. players, Bellator, focus on only MMA. We actually do the whole gamut of martial arts. So in a single show, you'll see the best kickboxer in the world. You'll see the best Muay Thai uh, fighter in the world. You'll see the best MMA fighter in the world. And, and there are different styles of matchups. So the first matchup might be kickboxing rules only. 
The second matchup might be, uh, you know, in, in a full fight card, might be, uh, you know, MMA World Championship. Um, and also even just the whole production value is very, very different. Uh, you know, our is our uh, event is very much like a spectacle where there's a massive stage. It, it goes all the way to the ceiling of the stadium. Um, it's LED. There's light sounds, um, uh, fireworks and laser and all that stuff and like a rock concert kind of feel. So when they come out, it's like versus, you know, the other players in the U.S., they just come running out of the tunnel. Um there's a lot of things like that, that that are different. The production values are very, very different, and the ethos is very different, and of course, uh, the actual offering. But I would say that you know, today uh, the uh, MMA or martial arts, smart combat sports, if you will, I'd say is a global duopoly. I mean, UFC has a 80, 90 percent market share in the in the Western Hemisphere. We have a 90 percent market share uh, in the Eastern Hemisphere, and uh, it's just uh, you know. There, there's room for everybody, right? I mean, if you look at Amazon in the in 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 the Western Hemisphere and Alibaba out here, or you know uh, Apple and Samsung, or you know even GM and Toyota, right? There's always a a big player from the West and a big player from the East, uh, and and it's just you know we, we are uh, we're just blessed to be in a global duopoly situation. We're chatting with Shatri Sitchadong, the chairman and founder of One Championship. Who is your Conor McGregor? Is there one? Because I was watching a highlight on, on, I think it was YouTube, and the guy knocked the other guy silly. Down he goes out, and he bows and paid respect to him. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So cultural difference there. I mean, is that throughout you know, Asian influence? That's throughout. Like, that, that to me doesn't scream uh, masterful hype like I'm going to get from Conor McGregor. Is, will there be a difference there? Right. So there's a, a massive difference. And that's why I said there's a 180 degrees approach in terms of our product, our ethos, our values, our heroes versus what you see right now in America. And I think um, whether it's UFC or Bellator, there's a lot of focus on controversy or hatred or anger or press conferences, you know, insulting each other or whatever it is. Uh, our ethos, because Asia is the birthplace of martial arts, our ethos is much more kind of like the Olympics. We call it values, heroes, and stories. Uh, you know, why does everyone watch the Olympics? Why is it the most watched sporting event in the world? And actually, no one pole vaults and no one does the butterfly, 100-meter butterfly, whatever it is. And yet you have boxing and taekwondo and karate and wrestling in, in, in Olympics. People focus on the Olympics, even though they don't actually play the sport or even know anything about it. It's because Olympics has a great job telling stories. Dick Ebersole at NBC, he was the master of it. He realized long ago that you, you better tell stories. And that is exactly the difference between us and, and uh, let's say, a UFC or a Bellator, which they sell fights. We build heroes. Uh, our ethos is very similar to like the Olympics where your parents and grandkids and kids can watch the event uh, on broadcast or in stadium together. Um, whereas you may not necessarily do that for the, 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 the uh, U.S. players. All right, Chitri, though, for folks who don't know your background, you went to Harvard, you worked on Wall Street, you had that finance background. You got out of there at what, age 30 or so, right? Was this, was this really just an idea that had always been bouncing around your head? Uh, and then you said, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm done on Wall Street. I don't need to put in all those hours. I've, I've made enough money. Uh, this is my passion play. This is what I want to do. Yeah. So, you know, I've been, I'm a lifelong martial arts. I've been doing it for 35 plus years. Uh, I've been a student, a fighter, a teacher, a coach, and now a CEO. And, you know, I, uh, it's my greatest passion in life. And so when I started one, I, well, let me rewind a little bit. Many years ago, I was dirt, dirt poor. My father went bankrupt, abandoned the family, and it was my mother and myself. 
And she actually came to live with me in my dorm room in my second year at Harvard because she had she was basically homeless. She had nowhere else to live. I slept on the floor. My mom slept uh, on the bed. And we just got it through. And obviously, the, the Harvard administration didn't know. Otherwise, I would have had big problems. But long story cut short, I thought the answer to happiness was money. So I said, let me make a boatload of money and do everything in my power because I just watching your mother suffer and watching her cry, you know, it just broke my heart in a million pieces just to be, you know, completely uh, vulnerable here. And but here's the thing. When I went to Wall Street and I made a, a, a crap load of money, um, it left me very unfulfilled. I mean, how many houses or cars do you need? How much how many more zeros do you need in your in your, in your bank account? And I just got really philosophical. And when I was about 35 or 36, around there, um, I found myself in a sushi restaurant, um, just deeply thinking by myself about the meaning of life and, and, and how do I want to live the rest of my life. I had already made it financially, and I was still chasing you know, uh, the dollar sign because I came from poverty. So I, I just thought, hey, man, I got to keep making money. But actually, I didn't sit back and think, what am I going to do with my life? What do I really enjoy? What was part of that fear that that the money could go away and then you'd be back to where you were? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, uh, my very first company I started in Silicon Valley right after uh, business. Well, actually, I started in business one. Then after I went to, went to went to Silicon Valley, my mom and I slept on sleeping bags on the office floor because I couldn't afford anything else, and we ate frozen dollar, you know, dollar fifty frozen foods, uh, microwave food, you know, for our meals, and that was our life. And I never want to go back to that, you know, or having to watch your mother come and live in, in a dorm room, right? In a small little single dorm room. Uh, I, I've always been, you know, uh, I never want to go back to that level of pain. My father banning us the helplessness, the family, we lost our house, the car, we lost everything, right? And and uh, watching my mother, who was a homemaker, didn't have any skills, never had a never had a job in her life, didn't know what to do, didn't have a, a resume. Uh, so yeah, definitely a lot of my drive came from that, like, I never want to see my mother suffer again, and I'm just going to try to make a boatload of money because that's going to be happiness. But I was wrong because once you get to the top of the money and you make a lot of money, and I realized it's actually not about material things or it's about how many zeros in your bank. It's about are you happy every day? Are you, are you having fun with your life? Are, are, do, are you doing what you love with people you love? You know, Do you have a sense of a passion and purpose? And so that's when I said, you know what, martial arts, I've been training martial arts even when I was in the States. When I was on Wall Street, living in New York City, I was training martial arts every day. And I said, I want to do something with my life that with, with the thing that I love most. And when I came back to Asia, I looked around. I said, look, but every region of the world has several multi-billion dollar sports properties. You know, you go to the U.S., NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, and they're part of the fabric of culture, history, and society, everyday life. You go to Europe, it's the same thing. F1, Champions League, EPL, et cetera. You come to Asia at the time, there's nothing, literally nothing. And so I thought, hey, man, how easy it must be easy to unify four and a half billion people here around our cultural heritage of martial arts. And I naively thought that. But the first three years were a complete disaster. Uh, <laughs> got, rejected, got rejected 100 times, millions of times, failure. Every broadcaster said it was a dumb idea. Brand said it was an idiot idea. Like everyone said it's impossible to build a global property from scratch. Give, give us uh, some. Give, give, give me. Give me some examples here. Which brand said this was an idiot idea? Come on, let's name some of these folks who are probably calling you now and saying, "I want to give you a bunch of money to be associated." You're, you're, you're going to get me in trouble with, with, with our our um, chief commercial officer here. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to name brands, but but I will say this. Okay, today we have brands like Tumi or Bentley or Hugo Boss or Samsung or LG Electronics or Xiaomi. You know, truly Fortune 500 type of brands that are now uh, advertisers and sponsors of one. I can tell you. Brands like that 
at the very early stages, 10 years ago when I started one, literally said it was it was just a dumb, dumb idea and that was impossible to build. And then so I'm grateful that Nielsen, uh, you know, laid it all out. I don't know if you've seen that industry report. It came out a, a few weeks ago and it laid out all the top 20 properties in the world in terms of viewership and engagement metrics. And we were uh, number 10. And where are you right now on on funding? I know some of your backers, our listeners will know Sequoia, Tomasic, which is one of the bigger investment uh, firms in in Singapore. How much money have you raised? How much are you looking to spend? Where does that stand right now? We've raised a total of $346 million. Uh, and um, I can just say that some really big announcements are going to be happening in the next uh, several weeks, possibly mm-hmm. a few weeks, some, some major announcements um, that will... Uh, Probably our biggest announcement in history. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye out uh, for that as well, for sure. And, and that is not, Eben, by the way, that I am in any way uh, about to fight and join one as a participant. Shatri's okay, going <laughs> to fight Dana White. You versus Dana White in the cage, that would draw some serious eyeballs around the world and be the greatest promotion. Uh, that, that would beat McGregor numbers. <laughs> well, you know, fans, uh, if you go to my social media accounts, are always asking for it. I mean... In part in jest, in part in seriousness, right? I mean, fans want to see it just because it would be uh, just something wild and out there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a lifelong martial artist. It's what I do. So, you know, I'm game. I, I like the, the I'm game. I'm, I'm guessing that's not going, going to happen. But uh, you were talking before because you held up your, your, your phone. And I am so big on this. Like everything with kids. I use my child. He's a 12-year-old boy as the focus group of one. And it's about phone, it's about Xbox, it's about gaming. He does not sit down and watch a three-hour game. Uh, Not NFL, not NBA. This is not a, yeah, he will not do it. Give me a little bit of a breakdown of your demos, not only by age, but by gender. 89% of our fan base is millennial and Gen Z, making us the youngest global sports media property on the planet. Uh, if you compare that with NFL, NFL has about 20% millennial and Gen Z. If you have NBA, it's about 35% for the NBA. Um, and MLB is also around 30%. F1's a little bit higher, around 38%. But uh, most of the major sports properties, the incumbent players, have an older demographic. Uh, because we were born 10 years ago in the digital era, and again, our, our greatest strength is that we were born in the digital era. We're digital first as a sports media platform. So we've you know been lucky, I said Forrest Gump of sports, to create viral content that just happened to be perfect for the mobile device. And it just took off all over the world. Um, And we have approximately 50 million fans now on social media alone. And it's growing like weeds. Like just all of our videos are just, you know, so much of it is just going viral. Um, And we are, uh, in some countries, we are 60, 40 male, female out here in Asia. Other countries were about 70, 30, but that's kind of the the range, 60, 40 male, female to 70, 30 male, female ratio, depending on the country. You you mentioned at the beginning, the work you guys do in in esports, competitive video gaming. Uh, It sounds like there's a lot of the lessons that you're learning in that world are are kind of transferring over to the, to the, to to the fight side of your business. But what have you seen in esports? What lessons do you take from kind of the way that those both on your phone from a, from a production standpoint and from a live event standpoint, the way that, that esports is reaching younger audiences that a lot of the sports you just mentioned are not. So the reason why we launched our esports division two and a half years ago is because there's an actually an 81% overlap between our fan base, between our esports sports property and our martial arts sports property. And the reason why is we wanted to dominate 
all of live sports for millennials, full stop, on the mobile device. And those are the two content stacks that resonate the most in terms of millennials and Gen Zs for live sports. As you rightfully pointed out, you know, the younger generation doesn't have the patience to watch a nine inning best, uh, baseball game. They don't have the patience to watch, you know, a 90 minute uh, uh, soccer game, uh, let alone the, they can't even see the baseball or, or, or the soccer ball on the mobile device. Right. Um, so so are, it, oh, wait, are the U.S. sports leagues that are the global sports leagues? Are they fighting a losing battle trying to get uh, on the mobile device? Because you're telling me the kids can't can't see you can't see the puck. You can't see the ball. You can't see this or that. Are they going about it wrong? How would you approach major U.S. sports in a digital way? I think we are genuinely, as the glo- if you look at the top 10 global sports uh, properties, right, we're genuinely at a major inflection point. I think if you look, if, you, if we roll forward five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, I see combat sports, soccer, esports, and possibly, possibly basketball as the only most sports that truly thrive in this new digital era. Um, and, and again, it's all about demographics, right? If, if we have an NFL today sitting at 20% millennials, it means 80% of their demographic is 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. Now, over time, of course, not to sound morbid, but the NFL fan, NFL fan is more They're going to die out. You can say it. <laughs> okay. Yes. There's, there isn't enough young people coming to see NFL to watch NFL to become fans yet. Their, their base is literally dying away. So unless they do something major and drastic, uh, what you're going to see in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years is that only the youngest sports properties, these new, uh, content ideas are the ones that are attracting the millennials and Gen Z. Um, and specifically, I mean, if you look at even the U S the UFC is the fastest growing sports property in the U.S., full stop. And it has the youngest demographic, especially relative to incumbent players like uh, uh, NFL or, or NBA or MLB. So, you know, if you roll forward 5, 10, 15, 20 years, I wouldn't be surprised if UFC overtakes some of these uh, more entrenched sports properties that we've seen over the last 100 years, you know, in the U.S. And the reality is this, is like if you were born 100 years ago, 80 years ago, 70 years ago, I like, was <laughs> like <laughs> NFL or NBA. Your DNA is not about digital. Your DNA is actually terrestrial TV. Your your DNA is cable TV. Now, I'm not saying they can't adapt their content for um, digital world and OTT and e-commerce players and everybody else who's watching. But it's not as easy as as you think because you have to change the nature of the game. How do you go from a nine inning baseball game and so that you can attract a 13 year old and, and make it a two inning best baseball game? I mean, you're seeing that in cricket. Cricket is now having like Instead of all day games, they're having, you know, down to even like, you know, 20 shot games. Like, you know, it's just like, it's, it's crazy. They used to have you'll, lo- you'll love this. You'll love this. My son does not watch baseball on television. It, it, like you said, he just doesn't have the attention span. Never watches. Does play baseball, though. You know what he does know? He knows every single player in Major League Baseball because of this, this video game, The Show. I, he plays with all his friends. So when he sees a guy in real life, if I'm watching a game and he steps in, he knows the batter, he knows the pitcher, but he doesn't watch the games. He knows them through the video games. Right. So, you know, there obviously there will be a, um, a spectrum of engagement when it comes to fan base. And, and of course, I would argue that if you're going to have the millennial generation, you need to have them engaged. So I would not necessarily call your son an engaged fan because if he's not watching the live sports, the live games, it means nothing because for sports properties, the crown jewel is actually the 
live event because that's what draws media rights. That's what draws sponsors and advertisers. That's what draws fans. That's what draws social media. That's what draws PR. It's the live events. Now, the highlights and all that stuff is cool. The video games are obviously awesome and, and another revenue stream for all global sports properties, you know, one included. But the, the essence is you want people to watch your core product. And then from there, you can build, uh, you know, fan engagement, fan monetization, a life journey with a fan. So yeah, I, I'm kind of wonder if somebody would model it for me. You know, give me somebody at McKinsey. What is a what's the value of two eyeballs of an engaged fan versus the value of two eyeballs of a disengaged fan? I mean, I'll just make up that term, but that would be interesting to know. Go ahead, Evan. Well, again, if you look at that and say, okay, let's say CNN, and I'm just don't want to get in trouble here, so I don't want to say CNN. I'll say some news channel that is typically an unengaged audience, meaning that they're just clicking on the TV, they're watching the news, what's happening around the world. They're not necessarily really passionate about it. You take the finals of Wimbledon or you take the you know Super Bowl, uh, that's an engaged, engaged fan. And what you'll see for the exact same spots and dots in terms of reach, let's say both, both uh, let's say for that day, both the news uh, uh, broadcast garnered 10 million uh, uh, reach and, and so did this, you know, sporting event, the sporting event ad dollars, just ad dollars will typically be 10 to 15 times higher for the exact same reach than uh, a, a news source, because everyone knows when you're watching news, you're not like cheering, you're not with your family, you're not engaged, you're not emotional, you're not passionate, you're just watching the news. So that's an example of unengaged fan. So an engaged fan typically gets 10 to 15 times more modernization ability than an unengaged fan. But by the way, you're wearing your Bruce Lee shirt. I think I'm wearing my Fight Island. I've got my Fight Island. I came appropriately attired. Evan, what, I mean, are you joining the party or what? Uh, I've no. Got a v- Vietnamese beer shirt on. <laughs> uh, this shirt happens to be a Bruce Lee shirt. It's it's, it's a collaboration between one and, and Bruce Lee. So we, 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 we're with the Bruce Lee estate. Shatria, one last question. We'll, we'll let you off on this. I, I'm curious how much your business kind of ebbs and flows with the compellingness of the people who are the best in your sport at the time. We've certainly seen here in UFC, Ronda Rousey gets kicked in the head. She loses. Conor McGregor steps away from the sport and suddenly the star power is is gone for a little bit. How much of your enterprise kind of relies on the fact that there is a really compelling, really popular kind of cross-cultural star active and as a champion in your divisions at one time? So, you know, I think, I think it's, it's, it's always a balance. You know, I think people come to a, come to the event because it's a one event and it represents the very best martial arts on the planet. Of course, there are stars who are big and who, who draw entire nations and inspire and unite entire countries, just like the Olympics. Um, like Anglan Sang from Myanmar, Myanmar has 54 million people. Uh, the country, you know, elected, a, a, erected a statue of him. He's literally bigger than Muhammad Ali. If he walks, in, you know, he cannot walk the streets of Myanmar. Literally, he get mobbed by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands right away. It's just insanity there, right? So we do have those kind of stars. But when I think about what is it that you know that moves a lot of the needle is we've had you know a bunch of UFC champions come over to one. So we signed Demetrius Johnson, who is the most winningest. UFC world champion in history. We've had uh, Eddie Alvarez. We've had, you know, uh, Sage Northcutt. We've had a bunch of UFC and they've all gotten knocked out. And so the fans went nuts. They're like, they, you know, in America, UFC is considered the best, right? Then they come over here and they all got knocked out, literally all knocked out. Now they're phenomenal fighters and they're still the best in the world. I'm not saying that they're not, they are, but you know, this is a tough, tough sport where if you're at the very top of the world. And I would argue that the one in the UFC roster genuinely represent the very, very best in the world. And 
the margin for error is literally the hair on your head. So any crossover stars, it, it, it's one of these things that you make one small little mistake of a micro of a second and you're knocked out. That's how tough it is in both of these uh, leagues. And uh, so I think that has gotten a lot of fan interest around the world and that people have, I've, I've literally, one of the most popular questions I ever get asked um, whenever I do interviews with fans or whatever is, when will we see a mega global event one versus UFC? I was about to yeah, ask. We need, that we need a unified. Yeah, when's the unified <laughs> champion? That's what I need to know. Yeah, right? yeah. East versus West, best of the best. Let's see it, and and I'm open to it. So I, I've told, I've said, look, you know, if UFC wants to run it, let's do it. I'm totally open. Champion versus champion, uh, and and let's see who's the best in the world. I love he threw in besides founder, chairman, he just threw in promoter. I love that. I love that. Shatri Sitchadong, chairman, one championship. Thanks so much for a little bit of the insight. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you. Evan, totally compelling discussion. I got to admit, I did not know that much about one championship before we decided to talk to Shatri. Um, But... I love the backstory, the mother on the on the floor, living in the dorm room. Like, I wonder how much that we have at Harvard. You know, you don't see that every day. Working on Wall Street, making a bucket of money, being unhappy, following the pet. I mean, it, it not as he said, storytelling is an, is great for the league. Well, he's might have the best story of them all. I thought he laid out uh, really nicely the the argument, and 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 we'll see if he's right. But the argument that kind of incumbent U.S. leagues like the Major League Baseball, NFL, uh, that their struggles to reach younger fans actually could, in the long term, harm them to the detriment of other sports like uh, mixed martial arts, like esports, the two ones that that, that he does. Um, certainly, the, the the media changes. He seems very confident that are gonna that are gonna blow the wind go, go his way. Yeah, no matter what you want to try, what he's saying is to have been born in the digital age is a big advantage. Yep, we we will see. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our social media editor, Cora Veltman, likes me to remind you that the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon be the Sportico Podcast Network. <laughs>